In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> it's really a great pleasure and a privilege to be back at St. James Church. This parish is a flagship uh, congregation in the Diocese of New York, a deep wellspring of spiritual resource and missional ministries uh, in this city and across the diocese. And I love coming here. Uh, the worship in this church is as beautiful as it can be. I'm so glad to be here today with Brenda, whom I've known now for 22 years. And uh, when, when I first knew her, she was a relatively new rector of this church, and now she's been here a good long time. And uh, she and I are both in the retirement queue now, and uh, so it's a different stage in life. We had lunch on Thursday and had a chance to catch up and to share some of those thoughts about uh, final transitions, and, and it was a good conversation. Glad to be here with her today and be able to stand at the altar with Brenda, but also with uh, Zach and Ava and James and, and Jay Seibotham. Um, it's wonderful to be with them and with the lay leaders of this congregation, some of whom I know so well. Margaret and I have friends in this church and people that I've worked with so closely. I just want to mention a couple. George Wade was the chancellor to Bishop Grine. And then for the entire episcopate of Bishop Sisk, he was his chancellor. And for the first seven or eight years that I was bishop, he was my chancellor. And I will tell you that when you become a bishop, or at least when I did, I had no idea how often I was gonna need a lawyer. It turns out you need a lawyer every minute, and uh, George was that, and uh, it's wonderful to see him and Wendy here this morning. Uh, it's, it's just a great thing for me. But also, I see Dick Dunham and Joan, and Dick came to the cathedral 11-some years ago and presented me for consecration as a bishop and stood with me as I came before this diocese uh, to be ordained to this office, and it's it's wonderful to see him and Joan, uh, a, moving, a moving thing. So, so good to be with you all. It's, it's a great day. We had, uh, at the earlier service, we had 18 people confirmed and three others who renewed their baptismal vows, and uh, it was tremendous. So it's already been a great day, and it's great to be with you all here for this wonderful liturgy and the musical offerings, which are just splendid. So glad to see you. Now, today is the fourth Sunday of Easter. This is a Sunday which is often referred to as Good Shepherd Sunday. Now, if you go to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, you will find pretty much everything that Jesus said about being the Good Shepherd crammed into that chapter. Clearly, all of the things in that chapter were not said at the same time by Jesus, but the evangelist John gathered together those teachings and put them together in one place. And that 10th chapter of John is where we hear Jesus tell us that he is the good shepherd and that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in different ways over that chapter, he takes that in different directions and explains it to us and goes inside it and outside it and, uh, and makes it real in, in the different stories and tellings that are part of that chapter. So let me say something about that, but let me come at it in a convoluted way. 
So when I came up the aisle, you saw me walk with my crozier, right? A shepherd's crook. Now, the one that I have and that I take around with me everywhere I go is a very simple wooden crozier. It's lightweight, easy to carry, and, uh, and that's the one that I, I came into this church with today. <coughs> but up at the cathedral, I have the bishop's official crozier. It's extremely ornamented. It's extraordinarily heavy. It's quite beautiful, and it never leaves the cathedral. And, uh, well, I did once. I'm going to tell you about that in a little bit. So um, that's the bishop's crozier for the Diocese of New York. It's up at the cathedral. Now, about six, seven years ago, I started getting messages from uh, Corpus Christi College in England. Now, this was a college that was founded by Bishop Richard Fox in the early 16th century. Richard Fox was the Bishop of Winchester. He was the prelate who baptized Henry VIII when he was born and then became a bishop and served as a bishop through much of Henry VIII's time as king. Big supporter of the Reformation, big supporter of the break with Rome. Uh, got in a lot of trouble for that. But uh, he was, in many ways, a very interesting, interesting person. He, um, up until that time, nobody ever read, no Christians ever read the Holy Scriptures in the languages in which they were written, which is to say the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Nobody read them in the original languages. They read them only in translation into Latin. They believed that Latin was the language of God. It certainly was the language of the Pope. It was the language of Rome. And so everything Christian happened in Latin. But Richard Fox had a different idea. He thought that we should be reading the scriptures in the original text, not in translation. So he began to gather and to collect manuscripts by the hundreds, medieval manuscripts of Old and New Testament uh, texts, of uh, liturgical texts, of theology, and he gathered them in their original languages so that um, he created a huge library of medieval Jewish texts, which were in Hebrew, Old Testament sections in Hebrew, and then New Testament uh, collections that were in Greek. And when he founded Corpus Christi College, he populated the library with his own collection. So I began to get these messages from Corpus Christi College. And what they said is that we're going to bring these books, particularly the Hebraica, the medieval Jewish books, we're going to bring them to America in 2017 in May. And they did. And all of these books traveled initially to the Folger Library in Washington, and they were exhibited there. Then they brought them to New York, where they were exhibited at the Yeshiva Museum at Jewish University. And, uh, and, they, and here's why they were telling me this. They were going to bring Richard Fox's Crozier with them. Now, Richard Fox's Crozier was quite ornamented. It was made out of silver, a beautiful thing, very valuable. And they were going to bring it with the collection and exhibit it with all of these manuscripts. Now, the thing is that in 1920, the Bishop of London had an exact replica of Richard Fox's crozier created. Not, I'm sorry to say, out of sterling silver, out of 
something else, but just as beautiful, just as ornate, just as heavy. And he gave it as a gift to the Bishop of New York. And the reason for this was to celebrate the friendship between our diocese, a friendship which is still strong, very strong, but also at that moment to celebrate the Anglo-American alliance which had won the First World War a couple years earlier. So he had this crozier made, and then he gave it to the Bishop of New York, and it has been the crozier for each of the bishops since, down to and including me. So they said, we're going to bring Richard Fox's crozier with us and display it at the exhibition of these uh, manuscripts. And we want you to bring your crozier down at the same time so that we can get the two croziers together again after all these years. And I thought, I'm not sure they miss each other, but uh, that's okay. I'm willing to do it. Now, let me tell you that, you know, when I went down there, I had to park about five blocks away. And when you walk through Chelsea with a 16th century crozier in your hand, you attract more attention than you really wanted to, but that's okay. I went down and went to the exhibition and oh, the manuscripts were out of this world. They were so beautiful, so interesting. And so it was a great collection and that was happening. But right in front of the door as you came in was a vertical glass case, transparent on all sides. And in the middle of that case was standing Richard Fox's crozier. Now that in itself was very moving to me. This is a piece of history, something that uh, represented the ministry of a very significant person in the English Reformation, and it was beautiful just to see it. So when people came in, they saw the glass case, and in the middle of the glass case, they saw Richard Fox's crozier, so dignified, so elegant, and then next to it, they saw me holding my crozier less dignified, less elegant, but nonetheless present, and the two croziers are back together again. So then people began to arrive for the exhibition. Now remember that of all of the manuscripts that Richard Fox collected, this exhibition was primarily, not exclusively, but primarily Hebraica, medieval Jewish texts, scriptural texts, theological texts, and it was being displayed at, at a Jewish university. So the audience for this, the people who came to the exhibition, were mostly Jewish people. But when they came into the room, what they saw in front of them was a crozier in a glass case and a crozier held by a short bearded man. And so I stood there and as people began to come in, since this was the first thing they saw, they would come straight to me, they would begin asking questions. What is this? What's it about? And, and by the way, this is the point of this whole long story. So they, they would come in and they would ask questions. And uh, they would say, what is this in the case? And what is this thing you're holding? And I said, well, they're croziers. And, and, and very briefly, I talked about how you know, one was a copy of the other one given by the Bishop of London, that kind of thing. They didn't care about that so much. But what they really wanted to know was what are they? What is a crozier? And I explained, these are staffs that a bishop will walk with. I said, the one in the case belonged to a 16th century English bishop, Richard Fox, who was the one who owned all of these manuscripts. And the one in my hand is mine. And, uh, and we walk with these. It's, it's part of our gear as bishops. 
And they said, well, what does it mean? What's it for? And I said, well, it, it, you walk with a crozier. It's, it's, you know, it's shaped like a shepherd's crook. And um, it's, uh, it's the, the mark, the symbol of your leadership of the diocese. And they said, okay. And then they said, why is it shaped like a shepherd's crook? And I said, well, bishops, but also priests are called in our tradition pastors. And pastor is the Greek word for shepherd. And, uh, and that's why we walk with a shepherd's crook. Well, why is that? And I said, well, you know, if you think about both in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Greek scriptures, the, the Jewish texts, the Christian texts, we find language about shepherds running through the entire tradition. For example, King David wrote a psalm in which he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. And if you look throughout the psalms, you will find many other passages, poetic expressions of shepherding as uh, an allegory or sometimes a metaphor of God's care for the people in the faith, his love for the people of the faith. And we see that throughout the Psalms. I said, if you go to the prophets in, in Isaiah, you'll find language of the suffering servant, uh, the, the, uh, the lamb, and that's all in there too. So there's a big tradition around shepherding and sheep that runs through the Hebrew scriptures. And, you know, they acknowledge that. And then I said, but then when you go to the Christian scriptures, if you go to the gospels, which are the books that record very specifically the teachings of Jesus Christ in his early earthly life and ministry, you find that continued. So um, if you go to uh, the book of John, you'll find the places where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this man said, what? He said that? He said, yes. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He said that? Where can I find that? I said, well, it's not hard. The Gospel of John is the fourth book in the Christian scriptures, and all of that is in the 10th chapter. Well, a crowd had begun to gather a little bit of people who had some of the same questions on their mind. I had to explain some of this again and again. But over and over, and over again, I kept confronting this shocked response to the expression that Jesus is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I wasn't quite sure where all of that shock was coming from. But I spent a lot of time thinking about that afterwards. And I came to reflect on the fact that what Jesus is doing in these expressions about shepherding and in his self-designation as the good shepherd, Jesus is taking already known and familiar language and words that belong only to God, the Lord is my shepherd, and was now ascribing that language and those words to himself. And that is what shocked the people who first heard Jesus say these things. 
So the gospel reading that we have today is taken from the 10th chapter. It's part of all of that teaching about shepherds and shepherding and sheep. It happens when Jesus is walking in the portico of Solomon in the temple in the wintertime, and a crowd of people come and see him, and they begin to confront him. Are you the Messiah? If you are, tell us plainly. Uh, don't, uh, don't beat around the bush. Let us know what's going on. And uh, Jesus, well, I've already told you, but you didn't believe me. The reason you don't believe me is because you're not, you're not a, a member of my flock. My sheep know my voice. My sheep hear me, and they believe. And that's the passage we have today. What the reading that we've heard doesn't include is the very next verse from the Gospel of John. This story happens, and then it says, and then the people began to pick up stones to stone Jesus to death for what he had said. And, you know, if we, if we go through the Gospels, it is not hard to find places where Jesus is teaching and nobody wants to hear it. You, you know the passage um, uh, and, and when, when the, Jesus has been teaching and the disciples are really troubled by what he said. And it says, and then the disciples began to conclude that they could no longer follow Jesus anymore. And they went away, most of them. And we find the passages that, that say... Um, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the crowd saying, these, these teachings are too hard to hear. We can't listen to this. And again and again, we find this shocking disbelief and rejection of the word that people are hearing because it challenges too much. It shocks them at that deep place where they live who they are, who they believe they are, and what they believe about God, the world, and creation. And that's what we see in this story. Jesus has taken language that belongs to God. He has um, applied that to himself, and the people are shocked enough to want to kill him for that. So I began to think about that. And I began to think about how shocking a lot of this stuff was to the people who first heard it, and I was getting a picture of that when I began to see how shocking it was to people in my own experience today who are deeply religious, faithful people who read many of the same scriptures, but who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, don't share that conviction with us, and therefore are not reading the Christian scriptures. For them, this passage, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, is new. And they were responding kind of the way people did in the first century. People are just people. doesn't matter when and where they live. And they were responding to that in the same way. And I began to think about the fact that we hear the passages about the good shepherd, and we hear the comfort. But we don't always hear the blasphemy. And I thought, maybe the problem is that over the centuries, we have so tamed this language. We have stripped the language of its shocking danger and have gotten to where maybe we can't even hear it anymore. You know, for a dozen years, I was, uh, almost a dozen years, I was a parish priest in Massachusetts, and my parish was the Church of the Good Shepherd. To constantly use that language. 
It was on the letterhead that I wrote letters on in the church. Church of the Good Shepherd, Good Shepherd, Good Shepherd. We did that all the time. But if you do that, if everything, if, if the language of Good Shepherd becomes so prosaic and day-to-day -day in our life, then it's not going to convey the same power that it did when it was brand new. It's not going to convey the same power that it did when I began to use that language with the people who came to the exhibition and asked me what my crozier was. But that began to worry me a little bit. And I thought, I wasn't so much concerned about everybody else in the world for the moment. I was worried about my own salvation. What do I believe? How do I come to the scriptures? Have I become so used to some of this language that it just no longer has the power to convert or transform me? And that was a big worry. So this was how I, where I kind of came to out of that experience. Began to think about the fact that our having lost the ability to be shocked and scandalized by the teachings and words of Jesus is a terrible loss. It's a terrible loss to us in our lives as people, but it's a deep cutting uh, um, away of the heart of the faith that we've received. And that was, and then th that was what really began to, to trouble me. So my experience with people who came to see the Croziers gave me a way to look at and see people having that kind of first century experience of these teachings and to take that language of Good Shepherd and to wrestle with it in a fresh way and to be fully scandalized and shocked by it, which I never am. So what I want to say about all this is that we live lives as Christians, and I want to say that we're never sort of fully baked, that the life of, of Christian faith is one that requires continual reconversion and retransformation all the time as long as we live. And if the fodder for that transformation and the food for that conversion ceases to be nourishing for us, it ceases to, to fill us and fulfill us, then I don't know how we come to our conversions and transformations as fully as God would have us to do or that we would have us to do. And that's something that concer should concern us very greatly. And as I thought about all this, I began to realize that actually what lies behind this sort of question is not just about how do we understand the passages about the Good Shepherd, but it goes to questions of how we know what to believe and how we believe what we believe, how we come into faith, what obstacles we must overcome to come into faith, what problems and stumbling blocks we have to get around and navigate in order to come fully into the faith and be able to say, I believe. So let me tell you another story, very short story. So back when I was the rector of the Church of the Good Shepherd in Massachusetts, um, that was in the town of West Springfield, and across the river in Springfield, there was a big synagogue and uh, they were having their confirmation class. It was all eighth graders. And uh, I got a call from the synagogue and it said, would you be willing to come to the confirmation class one evening and take one hour and explain to the kids everything about Protestant Christianity? And I thought, well, that's kind of complicated. I mean, I said, yes, I would do it, but, you know, I thought, how am I going to do this? You start talking about Protestants, you're talking about everybody from the Amish to the Greek Orthodox. And, uh, well, maybe not the Greek Orthodox, but it's a big field. 
And, uh, but I, I took the hour and I got over there and I did the best I could and uh, talked to the kids about it a little bit and helped them to try to understand. I thought, at the very least, I'll explain to them why we're different from Catholics. So I spent an hour and talked about some of that. And then I, you know, I finished my time. And as we were breaking up, I had my Book of Common Prayer with me. And one of these girls, eighth grade girl, was sitting there. And, uh, you know, you can, you're, you're talking to a bunch of kids. You can tell which ones are listening. She was listening. And so when we finished, she said, is that your prayer book? And I said, yeah. She said, I really like prayer books. Can I look at yours? I said, sure. Handed it over. And she began to flip through it. And uh, then she gave it back and she said, so... Do you really believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Now, her tone when she asked that question was as if she had asked me, do you really believe that the earth is flat and the ocean is filled with dragons? I mean, it was just that if, if we were to make the Christian claim that that was incredulous to her, and so she asked me, do you really believe that? And I thought, I've got to answer this young girl right now. I don't have time to think about this too much. But I could also see that simply saying yes or no uh, was not really going to work. So I said, um, I do. But I said, I think that there's, some other, there's something else to that. And I think maybe you won't understand it right now. But I promise you that as you get older, later you will. And that is that there are things in life, some of the most important things in life, that we believe because we choose to. We decide to believe it. We don't believe it because we have all the proofs that we want. We don't believe it like we believe the sun's going to come up tomorrow. We don't believe it because we have empirical evidence we believe it because despite all the obstacles to belief, despite the shocking teachings and stumbling blocks, still we choose to believe that God in Jesus did something new in the world that has importance for everybody in the world, that touches every person's life. And we believe it because we choose to. And I guess that's where I want to get to with this. I think one of the things I want to say is that it will benefit all of us to spend the kind of time with the Scriptures that will help us to understand, if we can, why these teachings were so shocking to the people who first heard them from Jesus. So shocking that they nailed him to a cross. That they couldn't decide whether they wanted to stone him or throw him off a cliff. But that the teachings were so shocking that they weren't sure they could allow him to live or keep these teachings alive in the world. And then to consider that there are people in our own day who become just as shocked when they hear the same teachings. And for us to spend the time to try to understand why. So that we can come to the scriptures with the eyes of fresh faith. And understand that it's not enough for us to find the teachings of Jesus comforting. We also have to find the teachings of Jesus blasphemous. 
because that's part of it too. And understand that in Jesus, new things are being said about God, and they're not easy. So the night at the exhibition, I learned more from talking to the people who came in the door than I did by looking at the manuscripts or anything else that happened there. Never forgotten it. And what I saw in that encounter with those good people who came and asked the most important questions was something about how we can approach the faith unafraid to be challenged to the very bottom of our being, unafraid to be shocked by new truths, unafraid to have the hardest teachings and the most difficult words presented to us and then find the way in our life to live with it, to be challenged by it, to grow by it. What I want for all of us is to come to the place where we can pick up the scriptures and begin reading the gospels and then find ourselves saying, what? He said this? And I think if we can do that, if we can get to that place, we will be very close to the kingdom of heaven. Amen.